0: Good morning, everyone. It's great to be in worship with you. If you're visiting with us, you're a special guest, and I hope to get a chance to, to meet you before we leave this place. And if you are visiting, we've been going through a study of the book of Acts, and we're actually coming to the end of that this morning. And um, it's my fault, but I didn't print the whole uh, section for our teaching this morning. So I'm going to read a little bit of head ahead, and then you can pick up in your bulletins under our New Testament reading. This is Acts uh, chapter 5, verse 27 through 42. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God Rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious. And wanted to put them to death, but a Pharisee named Gamil, Gam, I practiced this earlier, Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, "Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody." And about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All his followers were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would have your way with us, that you would let your word dwell in our hearts and our minds, Father, would you change us? Would you let us be those who are yours, the people that you have called us to be? And those of us here who are looking in from the outside, who don't yet consider themselves Christians, maybe we're skeptical, maybe we're dubious of these claims, and I pray that you would step into our doubts, into our skepticism, that you would meet us where we are, Father, I pray that you would send Jesus yet again into our midst, that we would be privileged to have him minister to us. Holy Spirit, come, and would you be present among us. We pray as we continue to worship, as we continue to study your word, I pray that you would change us, that you would be uplifted in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're in the last week of the book of Acts, and for about half the time we've been looking at uh, the, the, the book of Acts, we've seen this explosive growth around the city of Jerusalem primarily. If you follow out through Acts, then you'll see it exploding out from there. And so we saw three or four weeks of this unhindered growth. People were becoming Christians, people were flooding into the church, and then The last few weeks, last week, the one previous, and now this week, we've seen persecution. We've seen the authorities institutionally try to eradicate Christianity. And we see that from this point, really for another 300 years in church history until Constantine legitimates Christianity across the empire. We see these systematic institutional persecutions, executions, floggings, And we see Christians dying. And while they die, we see the church continue to explode, continue to expand. And we see that persecution and church growth go hand in hand. And we see these Christians, and this is up for no debate, what we see in the early church is Christians dying well. That one of the things that compelled people to come into the church to consider Christianity was that they saw these people being flogged, being beaten, and dying, and doing so, forgiving their tormentors, doing so, forgiving their persecutors. And they said, there's something there. There's something unique there, and I want to investigate it. Tertullian was one of the ancient church followers, and he says, we multiply, that is the church, whenever we are mown down by you. The blood of Christians is seed." The blood of Christians is the seed of the growth of the church. That's either very heroic or just outright crazy. What could compel people like Tertullian, people like Peter, the early apostles, to give praise to God as they're mown down? In those days, people were bred to be heroes. In the, in the Greco-Roman world, being a hero was of great importance. Importance And everyone strived to fight in a military campaign, to follow the models of Hercules and Achilles and Heracles, these people who were more than human but less than a god. But who are these apostles? Who are these who were dragged before the Sanhedrin? They were people like you and me. Many of them were very uneducated. They were unsophisticated. They were just day laborers that had met Jesus, and he had upended their lives and made them into heroes, made them courageous? What did they possess that made them able to defy those that held the power, the keys of life and death over them? What did they have? Where did it come from? And how do you and I get it? Three points. What did the apostles have? first of all. The Sanhedrin held sway over their future, their very lives. In verse 33, we know that Peter and the apostles knew that they could die. The council was furious, which is this really illustrative word, which which basically means they were coming apart at the seams with anger, that anger controlled them, that anger and hatred held sway over them And they would do anything to eradicate this movement and these people before them. They wanted to put them to death. And what do the apostles say? Verse 29, we must obey God rather than man. We must obey God rather than you. They were principled in the face of danger. Maybe they were afraid. They're human after all, but it didn't control them. It didn't hold sway over them. The council held sway over their lives, but something else held sway over the apostles' heart and will. They placed a higher value on some ideal, on some goal. They placed more value on that than they did their own lives. What do we call this? We call this courage. We call people like this heroes. Now, we have two problems relating to this episode relating to these people as heroes. One of them is cultural. One of them is personal. Culturally, we have a problem relating to martyrs or people who are even willing to be martyrs. In our day, they're called fanatics. They're called fundamentalists. They're the people that fly planes in the buildings. We have a very difficult time relating to martyrs or people who want to be martyrs because nothing is worth dying for anymore. So we have a problem with heroes. Our heroes today are anti-heroes. Maybe you've seen the new Superman movie that came out this week, and I've been wondering how it's going to do. Apparently the reports are that its box office is pretty good. But I wondered how it was going to fare, because other superhero movies recently have been updated to be much more dark, much more anti-hero. Think about Batman, The Dark Knight. Think about Wolverine, think about Iron Man. These are complicated characters that all have a dark side. These are the people that we relate to. These are the people that we now cheer on. People didn't relate to the Captain America movie a few years back because he was such a patriot. He was so white bread. He was so old. And Superman, too, is a throwback. He was made for another time. He was made for when America bred heroes. I read a review of the Superman movie in the Willamette Week this past Wednesday, and it pans the movie because of this very thing. The writer talks about how our image of the superhero has changed and that Superman is now a complete anachronism. He says the times have changed but old soups stayed the same, fighting for truth, justice, and the American way, even as those definitions blurred, warped, and finally lost meaning. Comic book fans have decried superheroism's founding father as a crusty anachronism for over two decades now, but it doesn't take a geek scholar to recognize that an invincible, morally superior star man isn't going to fly in an age when all heroes are antiheroes. There's a reason the Superman mythos has been revisited on film only one other time since 1987, and it's the same reason that people fall asleep in church. Flawlessness is boring. The earnestness, the the moral clarity of Clark Kent, of Superman, doesn't play well in our very ironic, very cynical age. The late... Novelist David Foster Wallace, who I've happened to have been quoting a lot lately, he talks about this loss of sincerity, this loss of earnestness, and its replacement by irony and cynicism. And he says that irony isn't wholly without value, but it can't be a primary value. Irony, entertaining as it is, he says, serves an exclusively negative function. It's critical and destructive. It's a ground-clearing But irony is singularly unuseful when it comes to to constructing anything to replace the hypocrisies that it debunks. Seeing good and evil, seeing heroes and villains in very black and white, very binary ways, does tend to flatten out people, to put them in boxes. And it can be a pretext for abuse, for prejudice, for oppression. But if you're ironic all the way down Wallace says, then how can you stand against and redeem injustice? We need heroes in our day, in a day where we cheer and root for anti-heroes. We need heroes with moral clarity, heroes who can stand against injustice, but who won't be used to flatten out people, to diminish them. We have a trouble, we have a problem relating to heroes because of the culture that we live in, that we swim in, but also personally. Because most of us in this room probably won't stand before a tribunal like this. It's totally foreign to our everyday experience. It's like reading the Odyssey. It's very interesting, it's literarily compelling, but it doesn't prompt us to much life change because it seems so foreign, so far out of our everyday experience. And so what we need to do, what you and I need to do in a place like Portland is to understand an everyday heroism that doesn't involve staring down a firing squad, squad or falling on a grenade. I know most of you and I know a lot of your stories and I hear the incredible everyday obstacles that you face with extraordinary courage. And this should in no way diminish the spectacular acts of valor of Christian martyrs in the past or present or future, those who are willing to risk life and limb in a literal sense. But I'd submit to you that there are challenges that you and I face on a daily basis that are just as difficult. Everyday faithfulness over the course of decades is outrageously heroic. It takes tremendous courage to face up to and own and deal with our own demons, our own past, our own scars. It takes tremendous courage to make changes in the areas that you've so habituated that they've become almost second nature to you and yet are destroying you from the inside out. It takes tremendous courage and heroism to parent a child with developmental difficulties or to keep on loving a defiant teenager. It takes... Great strength for some of us who are wrestling with depression or social anxiety. It's an act of pure heroism just to get out of bed and show up for worship or to show up at your community group and say, I'm here and I need you. It takes courage to be a neighbor, a friend, a spouse, a parent, and to do so day in and day out, without vacation, without rest, for the rest of your life. To keep living intentionally and lovingly towards those people to, for decades on end is courageous. You may never have to stand trial before a tribunal like this, before the Sanhedrin, but you're making decisions. You're faced every day with the decision of, will I obey Will I give sway to God and His Word in my life, or will I give sway to that which everyone else is telling me? Will I listen to the voices of my past and my sin, or the voice of Jesus which says you're lovely and perfect? Will you let the current conflict with your child or with your parents to define your well-being, or will you be defined by the fact that Jesus went to the cross and was resurrected for you. Each of these everyday decisions take courage because you have to give sway to one or the other. And one is difficult and one is not. The Sanhedrin held sway over the apostles' life, but something else held sway over their will, over their perspective. And their courage, their heroism was grounded in the promises and the presence and the previous works of God. And you can have it, too. In fact, you desperately need it, whether you know it or not. That's what courage, heroism is. But what's the source? Where did they get their courage? Where do these uneducated, unsophisticated, normal people like you and I get The heroism, to stand before the Sanhedrin and profess Jesus no matter the cost. Where where does it come from? They say, we must obey God rather than men. Line in the sand, statement of ethical conviction. But why? Why are they willing to say this? Why are they compelled to say this? Well, the answer, it seems almost like a non-sequitur. It says, why? Because God raised Jesus from the dead, exalted him, and made him Savior and Prince. Okay, these are great, true things, but why does that compel them to stand before the firing squad, if you will? Let's look at a few of these words. One is Prince, Savior and Prince. It's used here, and it's used in chapter 3 of Acts. And it's a very rare, very difficult term to define. Here it's prince, but in chapter 3, it was author of life. Prince and author of life, all in this one word. It's used two other times in the New Testament. In the book of Hebrews, it's pioneer and captain. Author of life, prince, pioneer, captain. Now, if you look outside of Scripture, it's used in Greek literature a great deal to refer to who? Hercules, who was called not only Savior, but Captain and Prince and Champion. This word simply doesn't have a direct one to one synonym in English. It needs a number of them, a constellation of words to get to this one Greek term. And I would recommend that it would be best captured by our term hero hero. Jesus is our hero. In fact, he's the hero. We have this difficulty with this idea of a hero, but how did they think about it in their day? How did those steeped in the Greco-Roman culture think about this idea of a hero? Alistair MacIntyre wrote an important book a few decades ago called After Virtue. And what he argues, he he says it in Greek life, that you don't just have heroes, but that life was based upon the concept of heroes, of the heroic, of the exceptional. And so everyone in the culture is trying to live up to this ideal, to be seen as a hero. But when your heroes are demigods, aren't you going to feel inconsequential? No matter how great you are, if you're measuring up to Hercules, how are you ever going to achieve that ideal of heroism? But for us, it's likely not Heracles or Achilles or Hercules. Who are our heroes? Besides those in the movies that we've just talked about, who do the broad culture look to? Christina Kelly wrote a number of years ago. She's a writer for fashion magazines Young Miss and Elle. And she wrestles with the very thing that her career is based upon, introducing young girls to the celebrity culture. And she says, Why do we crave celebrities? Here's my theory To be human is to feel inconsequential. So we worship celebrities and we seek to look like them. All the great things that they have done, we identify with in order to escape our own inconsequential lives. But it's so dumb. With this stream of perfectly airbrushed, implanted, liposuction stars, you would have to be an absolute powerhouse of self-esteem already not to feel totally inferior before them. Do you see what she's getting at? It's exactly the same thing in the Greco-Roman culture, measuring themselves against these great heroes, these demigods. We don't have demigods, we have celebrities. But the effect is the same. So we worship them, she says, because we feel inconsequential, but doing so makes us feel even worse. We make them stars, but then their fame makes us feel insignificant. But the second reason is that we, ad- that we adore celebrities is that our society is not as religious as it once was. I don't pretend to have all the answers, but it seems like people need something to make them feel consequential. Celebrity worship is a warped and unfulfilling substitute for religion. Peter is evoking for us this sense, Luke is evoking for us this sense that we need someone to worship. We need heroes. And who is, who is the apostle's hero? Why do they stand before the Sanhedrin with courage? God raised Jesus from the dead, exalted him, And made him savior and prince. We absolutely need someone greater than us, but if it's a celebrity, if it's a sports hero, if it's a demigod, if it's even a genuinely great person who we admire, if we don't just model ourselves, but we actually compare ourselves and always strive to live up up to that ideal, we'll be forever in jeopardy in jeopardy of feeling inconsequential as we measure our lives against those people or those persons, those gods that we serve. But you see, here's the thing, and here's the unique thing about Jesus is that he's the one hero whose perfection doesn't leave you feeling inconsequential because he says he was perfect for you, that he went to the cross for you that imbues us with this great sense of divinity that Jesus says, you are loved, you are made in God's image, and I will go to the cross, I will risk myself for you. You can't be left after you meet Jesus feeling inconsequential because look at what he has done. Look at the lengths to which he has gone. He says he was perfect for you. If Jesus is your hero, if he holds sway over you, you understand that on one hand, you're far from perfect. You're far from beautiful. You're far from courageous. But in his death and in his resurrection, he's made you beautiful. He's made you courageous. He's made you perfect. And so you're not left feeling proud and self-important, Because your weakness and your sin was so deep that you needed more than a role model, you needed more than someone just to emulate, you needed a rescuer. It was by his mercy that he restored and rescued you. So you can't be left feeling proud and self-important, but at the same time, you're considered worthy of God's attention and care. The world's true hero loves and adores you. You see, he's the one hero who won't be used, can't be used to flatten people out and diminish them and think about them solely in binary ways, but at the same time gives us these great resources to see and address injustice, whether it's outside of us or inside of us. Peter says to the Sanhedrin, that hero, that person, Jesus, You killed him. You killed the hero of the world. He was standing before you and you rejected him. But God raised him from the dead, exalted him, and made him savior and prince. You see, friends, Jesus is not just one more hero to add to the pantheon. He's not even just the greatest hero of all time. But he's the hero that all other hero stories point to, and find their substance and foundation in. He's the reason that you and I dream about heroes and want to be a hero. Remember that term prince, that he's he's savior and prince and captain? Remember the various terms? Captain, champion, also author of life. That all of life is built by him and created by him. The true hero has made you. That's why you dream about being a hero. He's the Lancelot, the King Arthur, the Aragorn, the Cory Ten Boom, the Oscar Schindler. These people that risk their lives. He's how we think of heroes. He's the one slaying the dragon, hiding Jews from the Nazis, giving up kingship for someone else. But what does he have that all of these others lack? He has the power to create life. He's the author of life. You and I dream about heroes. We seek to find heroes, even in broken places, because you were made to be one. You were made to be a hero. You and I love stories of heroes because we were created by the one who invented hero stories. We were made to be like him. We are made to stand before the tribunal in whatever shape it may take and say, yes, Jesus is my prince and savior, whatever the cost. And with each little decision that you and I make to say verbally or behaviorally that Jesus is my prince and savior, you become more like the one that you were made to be. Whether it's standing before potential persecution or whether it's standing before your to-do list on a given morning saying that I will follow Jesus in these circumstances connects you more with your savior and prince. You become more like the person that the greatest hero ever was made you that made you to be. There's a real hero who can make you heroic and Jesus is the answer of what is the source what is heroism? What is courage? Who is the source? Jesus, the true hero. But then, how do you get it? How do you plug into that? I've, I've hinted at that already. But maybe this sounds great. Hey, I'd, I'd love that. I'd love more courage. I need more courage. I feel like I'm failing every day, so how? It was said a number of years ago that No one is a hero to his valet, or as we've come to know from Downton Abbey, a valet. No one is a hero to his valet. No one is a hero to the people who really see you. Now, of course, this is rhetorical because, obviously, we know people very intimately and think of them as our hero. Children think of their parents as their heroes. You may think of your spouse as your hero, but the point is that we can put on a very different show outwardly than who we are internally. And it's very much easier for me to make you guys think that I'm an okay dude because I can control the circumstances. But ask the people in my home about who I am and you may get a little bit different answer. No one is a hero to his valet. Peter spent time with Jesus day in and day out for two to three years. And apart from a familial Relationship. He probably had more access to Jesus' Jesus's internal life, to who he was in private, than anyone else. Two to three years walking with Jesus, learning from Jesus, sitting at his feet, he sees the real person, and he's able to proclaim, Jesus is the Savior and Prince of the world. There was complete consistency between Jesus' private and perfect or public persona. He's the one guy whose valets think he's a hero. Yet how do those in power think about him? Cursed. Cursed. There's a passage in Paul's epistles where he talks about cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree, picking up from this idea in Deuteronomy that these Sanhedrin council members would know very well Cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree. Cursed is anyone who hangs upon a cross. Jesus was anything but a hero to them. He was cursed. If you hang on a cross, you can't be a hero. If you hang on a cross, you can't be the Son of God or the Messiah because anyone who hangs on a cross is cursed. You see, it's one thing for a hero to come crashing in and slay the dragon. It's another thing entirely to let the dragon slay you even when you know you can defeat it. It's one thing to rush to everyone's rescue from the murderer. It's another thing to let the murderer do its worst to you even though you know that you could defend yourself and defeat him. Jesus is weak when he could be strong. And friends, that's the ultimate hero. Where's the source? How do we connect with the source? How do we access that in our own lives? Well, for you to become a hero, to become courageous, you have to admit that you're a coward. You have to admit that you're afraid. You have to admit that you're weak. You have to admit that there's dragons standing in front of you. There's dragons residing inside of you, and you can't defeat them. Peter, again standing before the Sanhedrin with utter courage. But what's his story? He's the one who caved. He's the one who spent years with Jesus, being convinced that Jesus is Prince and Savior, and yet in the moment where it most mattered, he says, I don't know the man, and then runs away. It's Peter who's standing before the Sanhedrin and is saying, come what may, Jesus is my prince and savior. This person who caved and ran now is courageous and a hero. Something's happened to Peter. He's been restored. He's been brought to repentance. He's been made new. He's been made courageous. It's not just that he steals himself and gets strong and finds courage within, it's that Jesus has put courage within. It's that Jesus has put repentance in his heart. What is repentance? It is saying once and for all that I cannot slay those dragons, that I would like to live life my way, I would like to have credit for slaying the dragon, but instead I can't. I'm a coward. And yet Jesus has come in and slayed the dragons on his behalf. Jesus has come in and rescued him from his own fallibility, his own sin, his own brokenness, his own hubris at saying, I can do this. I'm fine on my own. Peter sees that he's not because given the chance, he'll run away from Jesus. Given the chance, he'll say, I don't know the man. But he's been brought to repentance. And friends, that's the key, verse 31, because this hero, Jesus, brings sinners to repentance, or he brings repentance to sinners. He carries repentance to your life. So even the, the very need, the very thing that you most need in becoming a Christian, i.e. repentance, rejecting the trust of self and trusting in someone else, that's the key. Even in that, Jesus says, I will carry you over that gap. Even in that, Jesus is your hero because he grants repentance. It's not something that you have to develop and well up in yourself. You just have to say, Jesus, I can't. Jesus, I'm a coward. Jesus, I'm scared of what that might look like and what I might have to give up. Would you lift me up and carry me over the threshold? He brings courage to failures. And if you're going to be a hero, you got to do the first heroic act, which is to admit that you need to be rescued. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this time, and we are grateful that you are a hero who loves failures, that you're not going around looking for the strongest, best-looking, perfect people, but you're looking for people who admit that they're not. You're looking for people in your mission who will simply follow you, who will simply take your lead who would simply bow and say, we need a hero. We need a rescue. Father, would you do that again? Remind us as we confess our faith and as we come to the table, the hero that you want to be on our behalf. And whether we've been Christians for many decades or whether we're saying this for the first time, I pray that we would recognize your heroic act on our behalf and take hold of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.